You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Imagine with me for a few minutes that you and I are standing <clears throat> where the first century village town, the village of Capernaum, the fishing town, meets the Sea of Galilee. And as we stand, the, stand there on the north side of the lake, we see coming toward us a cluster of wooden boats. And we can already hear the chatter on those boats. We can hear the chatter of excited people, passengers on those boats as they head toward shore. And soon we hear the crunching of the gravel as those boats hit the shoreline and the splash of some of the men as they jump out of the boat and drag the boats in a little bit farther so they're more secure. And, and then some of these passengers uh, hopping out and chattering among themselves, excited. And as we watch all this, we realize these people are on a mission. These people are here for a reason. They're looking for someone, something. And so as we eavesdrop on their conversations, we realize these people are looking for a person. They're looking for a famous preacher, a famous preacher named Jesus. And so not long after they hit the lake shore, they had a few hundred yards into the town to the stone synagogue there in Capernaum. And I'm confident that as many of them as were possible packed into that synagogue near the lake in Capernaum. And sure enough, they found Jesus. And so as they find the rabbi, the teacher, Jesus there in that Capernaum synagogue, what's the first question that they ask him? When did you get here? When did you come here? Now, now we hear that question. We're kind of dropping in on this scene, right? We're kind of dropping in. And that question, when, when did you get here? Sounds a little bit foreign to us. Like, what an odd first question to ask. But it helps to get a background. And some of you were here over the last few weeks when we looked at previous passages. Let me just remind us quickly of what's going on. The previous day, 24 hours ago, this group of people packed into that synagogue had been part of a much larger group across the lake when Jesus fed the 5,000. It was Passover time. And at that most celebrated festival of the Jews, Passover, at the Passover time there in Galilee, Jesus had fed thousands of people. We often refer to this miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. Well, if you read the Gospel accounts, and interestingly, this is a miracle found in all four of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We refer to it as the feeding of 5,000, but if you read carefully, it says there were 5,000 men. So I'm assuming that there were women and children there as well. We don't know for sure, but as Pastor Nate alluded to a few minutes ago, there could have been upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people that day on the other side of the lake. Now, most of us, not all, but most of us here in this auditorium live in the Warsaw Winona Lake community. Now, if you combine our two towns, Winona and Warsaw, you come up with about 20,000 people. Can you imagine leaving our auditorium today and as you walk out the doors into the parking lot, the parking lot is full of people. They're spilling over these 19 acres that we were parked on here at CCC. Into the neighbor's yards, there's, there's 15 to 20,000 people. It looks like every citizen of Warsaw and Winona Lake is here on our property. Well, that's what it would have looked like on that Galilean hillside when 15 to 20,000 people crowded around Jesus, and it was mealtime, and they had nothing to eat. And on that Passover, there in Galilee, Jesus fed those 
15 to 20,000 people with what? Some of you kids help me out here. Kids, what did Jesus have to work with to feed this humongous crowd? Let me hear some young voices. All oh, the young voices get older. <laughs> I heard, I did hear some of you kids over here. Thank you very much. There were five little loaves, what we would probably consider pita bread, uh, five loaves and a couple of dried fish. A boy in the crowd had donated his lunch, these five loaves of bread and two fish. And, and with that meager lunch, Jesus did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, or we might say the feeding of the 15 to 20,000. Now, the people there in that large crowd on the other side of the lake had noticed that afternoon that uh, Jesus' 12 disciples had gotten into the only boat that was there at that time. At that time, there was only one boat on the shore near the feeding of the 5,000. And all 12 of Jesus' disciples had gotten into that boat and headed across the lake as night fell, but Jesus was not in that boat. The next morning, some other boats had arrived from Tiberias on the seashore there, and I'm kind of guessing that these fishermen probably were wanting to make a little extra money and offered to take some paying passengers. That's my guess. It doesn't say that in the Bible. <clears throat> but some of the people in that very large crowd had gotten into these boats and, and headed uh, over to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And they found him there. And their question, when did you come here? I mean, they knew he had not gotten into that only boat that was there the previous afternoon. How did he get here, kids? Did he walk the 15 miles up around the edge of the lake? Had he walked all night 15 miles up around the lake to get to Capernaum in the morning? No, no, he had taken a shortcut, hadn't he? He had taken a shortcut, not around the lake, but he had walked on the lake. <laughs> Jesus had done a miracle witnessed by his 12 apostles of walking on top of the water across the lake. That he had come upon his men in that boat struggling against a headwind a few miles from shore. They were frightened when they saw him, but Jesus assured them. And as he climbed into the boat that night, everything kind of calmed down. And miraculously again, they were on the shore at Capernaum. So now, some hours later... This crowd of people in Capernaum asked Jesus, when did you get here? Look with me in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And this morning we're going to look at a large passage beginning at verse 22. So if you'll turn in your Bible, turn, tap, whatever you do, to John chapter 6, verse 22. We're going to eavesdrop in this fascinating dialogue between Jesus and this crowd of people packed into the Capernaum synagogue. They're asking Jesus a very direct question of curiosity. When did you get here? How did you get to be here? But did you notice as we read that Jesus does not answer their question directly? Is your Bible open to John 6? Let me begin by reading verses 22 through 27. On that next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, that means teacher, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. The people ask the question, when did you come here? But Jesus ignores that question and gets right to the heart of the issue. He knows people. He can see what's in people's hearts. And he addresses the motivation of their heart. He says, this is about bread, isn't it? Yesterday I fed you. Yesterday I fed you with the loaves and the fishes. And you're here because you want more. You want more bread. Now, it's easy for us to sit here all these centuries and miles away and be critical of the people in that Capernaum synagogue, but as I was preparing this message and as I was meditating on it personally, it struck me, uh, how many times have I done that same thing? How many times have I sought the Lord because I wanted something from Him? I, I was more interested in the gift than the giver. More interested in a meal than the message. Jesus does give good gifts, doesn't he? We're not disparaging the fact that Jesus gives good temporal gifts. You know, just think about your everyday life. Think about my everyday life. You and I experience gifts of mercy, gifts of kindness, gifts of generosity in a temporal fashion every day. Brainstorm with me for a minute here. What, what are some of the temporal gifts the Lord kindly gives us day by day? He gives us our... Pardon me? A place to live. He gives us our homes. He gives us food to eat. He gives us things to drink. He gives us our family. He gives us our jobs. All those things are gifts from Him, and we want to be appreciative of those and thank Him for that. He taught us to pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. Give us a day's worth of bread today. Um, he's kind that way, and we're thankful for that. But Jesus is trying to teach these people there's more than that. There's more than just temporal bread. He says in verse 27, do you see it there? He said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You're going to see this bread theme all through the passage today with echoes of Exodus, with echoes of manna. And Jesus reminds these people a couple of places in this passage. He reminds these people that your ancestor, our ancestors, he was also Jewish, our ancestors in the wilderness during the time of the Exodus, they ate manna. They ate bread from heaven. And yet that bread, the manna, didn't give them eternal life. Jesus says twice in this passage, he says, and our ancestors died. They ate manna. They ate bread that God supplied, and, and yet they died. There is a food, however, Jesus says, that endures to eternal life. That bread that endures to eternal life stirs our interest. So we ask the question, along with these people in that Capernaum synagogue, well, how do I get that bread? How do I get the bread that leads to eternal life? Look at verses 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
what a common but eternally faithful approach to this issue of how can I have eternal life? Do you hear the question these people are asking? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This isn't just a first century Jewish issue, is it? Now, now we're not going to do this, but if I said, folks, we're all dismissed, we're going to spread out. Some of you are going to go to Owen, some of you are going to go to Martin, some of you are going to go to Walmart. We're going to spread out, we're going to do a survey. And you're going to just interview people. Just interview whoever you come up to at the stores here in our community and ask them, hey, are you going to heaven? Do you think you're going to heaven? What do you suppose, and I, I think we're right here, what do you suppose is the most common response we would hear from people if we were to ask the question, do you think you're going to heaven? The most common response would probably be, I sure hope so. I heard several of you saying it. That's, that's where I'd put my money to. I mean, if I were a betting man. Uh, <laughs> I, I would guess that the most common response to that question would be, I sure hope so. Now, what does that imply? What does that response imply? There's uncertainty, but what else does it imply? I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I'm sincere. I'm a good person. At least I'm better than some people I know. You should meet this guy at my work. You know? <clears throat> and so we imply, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Now, maybe some of you have that question right now. You think, you know, I'm doing my best. That, that response. And maybe all of us have had that attitude at some point. And you have friends and relatives, co-workers right now, that that's their attitude. I sure hope so. I'm doing my best. What do I have to do to make myself good enough for God? Answer that one. How good do you have to be to be good enough for God? Perfect. Any perfect people here? Me neither. Now, there's a sobering reality. And that's, that's a really uh, blunt way of approaching this whole issue of how do I be right with God? The natural response, the normal response, no matter what era you're talking about, no matter what culture, what ethnicity you're talking about, the common response is, I'll do my best to make myself acceptable to God. And yet the reality is that none of us can be good enough for a perfect God. So the only solution would be is if there's a substitute out there. Is there someone who could stand in my stead? Someone out there who could stand in my place, represent me before the holy God. Someone who could stand before the Holy God in my place. And that God the Father would accept me because of Him. Th that's the only possible way a Holy God would ever accept you or me. That we could find a substitute. Someone to stand in our place, in our stead. Jesus is saying here that He is that one. He's saying, I am the bread who comes down from heaven. You have to put all of your faith in me. That's what God requires you to do. Jesus says, oh, you want to know the work of my Father? Okay, I'll tell you what it is. The work of my Father, borrowing their terminology, the work of my Father is that you put all of your faith in me. I am his Messiah. I am the Savior. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Eternal life is found in me, in me alone, as we'll see. And so how do the people respond to that? What is their reaction to that? Look at verses 30 and 31. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? 
what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. These religious people, these were not pagans, these were religious people crowded in that, that Capernaum synagogue. And when Jesus said, Put the Father in heaven, my Father in heaven has told you that what he requires of you is that you put all of your faith in me. The people heard that, and the clear implication is they're saying, oh, you're implying that you're the Messiah. You're implying that you're the Messiah. Now, why should we believe you? Why should we believe that you're the Messiah? Why should we believe that God the Father sent you? Why should we abandon our attempts to be make ourselves acceptable to God and put all of our eggs in the Jesus basket. Prove it. Prove it, Jesus. Prove that you're the Messiah. Does, does this question strike anyone here as a bit odd? I mean, what happened less than 24 hours ago to these same people? He fed them miraculously. He'd fed these very people miraculously, less than 24 hours before. And now they're saying, okay, Jesus, you want us to believe that you're the Messiah? You want us to believe that, that you're the one that God sent, that we should put all of our faith in you? Prove it. Do some sign miracle. And they allude to the fact that back in Exodus, Moses gave the people manna to eat. And it's, it's almost as if they said, Jesus, that, that was nice. That was nice that you fed us lunch yesterday. That, that was, thanks, that was great. Moses fed hundreds of thousands of people six days a week for 38 years. Try that one on for size, Jesus. You think feeding us lunch one day is going to make us think that we can put our faith in you? Well, if you're the Messiah, then you should be doing what Moses did. You should be doing more than Moses did. First century Judaism had this fascination with manna. I was reading a book on this, and let me just read you a few sentences. It said, Judaism understood that there was a storehouse or treasury of manna in heaven that had been opened to feed the people during the era of Moses. The Israelites had been fed with bread from heaven. This treasury would be reopened with the coming of the Messiah. This would be a messianic second exodus in which blessedness would rain down from on high. So the popular theology among the people was that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be manna flowing from heaven. It's going to be like the Exodus, only better. You know, God's just going to rain down. He's going to open the floodgates of heaven. He's going to open the doors of his treasury, and the manna's going to fall down. And these people are pretty excited about a thing like that. So how does Jesus respond to that? What does he have to say to that challenge? Look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, Jesus corrects their thinking on, in two ways. One is, he says, don't think it was Moses who provided the man in the wilderness. It wasn't Moses, it was God. Now, the people knew this. They knew this from their Bible, but somehow it was conveniently passed over at this time. We forget our Bibles too at times, don't we? In Exodus 16, Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now, they knew the book of Exodus. It said 
right there that Moses reminded the people that God had provided the manna. It wasn't from his hand. The, the people in Jesus, they had a songbook. They had a hymnal that we know as the Psalter. It's the, it's the book of Psalms that they would sing these songs. And one of the th- songs they would sing is Psalm 78. And in this song, this is what these people would have sung at times in the worship services. He, God, commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain from heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. And so these people in that Capernaum synagogue knew from the scriptures that they heard and they heard preached and that they sang that it wasn't Moses that gave the man, it was God himself. So Jesus had to correct their thinking. You're comparing me to Moses. Don't do that. But then he also teaches them something else. The manna in the wilderness was never intended to be an end in and of itself. The manna in the wilderness was to be a sign that pointed ahead to the coming Messiah. And Jesus said, the manna in the wilderness was a signpost to me. God's living bread that came down from heaven. The manna, the bread, was just a symbol, a sign, a type of the coming Messiah, the bread that came down from heaven. So now what are the people going to do with that? Verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. (laughs) They're still thinking materially. They're still thinking temporally, aren't they? It reminds me of that woman at the well that we learned, we met in John 4, who her initial response when Jesus started talking about living water, she said, well, give me that. You know, boy, that would be nice. I wouldn't have to make trips out here to the well every day. You know, hey, I'd like some of that. And it wasn't until later that she realized Jesus was speaking of himself as the living water. And these people in this Capernaum synagogue, when Jesus talks about living bread, the bread from heaven, they're still thinking temporally. They're still thinking, well, that'd be nice. You know, Jesus, we wanted to make you king over there on the other side of the lake, and you went off to the mountain or something. But, you know, if we had someone like you in charge, I mean, you could do miracles like you did yesterday every day. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't have to go to work tomorrow. You know, that King Jesus could just keep giving us his bread every day, and we wouldn't have to go to work. And, and they were thinking temporally. They were thinking in, in too small a way. Jesus responded this way, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I am the bread of life. When we read the Gospel of John together here on Sunday mornings, as you read it in your home, read it to your family, you're going to notice that John brings out seven of these I am declarations. They are echoes of the burning bush where God revealed himself to Moses as the I am. And now here is Jesus, God come in the flesh. And seven times in the Gospel of John, we are going to hear him make bold, clear declarations identifying himself. He will say things like, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. And here, I am 
the bread of life, a bold statement of his identity. Jesus is speaking of bread as a symbol of life itself. Now, we don't grab hold of this as quickly in our 21st century Western world as the first century Jews would have. But in many cultures, even today, and definitely in that culture in the first century Mideast, bread was a symbol of life itself. We eat such a variety of foods. But in the first century, most of the people would have primarily sustained life on bread. You know, they might have some vegetables they grew or some figs from their tree or whatever, but a lot of their calories came from eating bread. And so bread became the symbol of life itself. It sustained life. Jesus is picking up on that culturally understandable symbolism there, and he's saying, I am the bread of life. If you want to live eternally, you must come to me. I am your sustenance. I'm what gives you life. I give you eternal life. Come feed on me. Come feed on me. Assimilate me into your life. Trust in me and me alone to give you eternal life. But the people didn't like that, did they? Look at verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? These people grumbled. You know, just like Moses had to deal with grumbling people that got tired of the manna, even so now Jesus hears grumbling from these people who don't want to accept him as the bread of life. People are people. Those centuries separated these two groups. They both grumbled at God's provision. Jesus clearly said that God had sent him. You know, this is just by way of a side, but I often think of their initial question, when did you get here? <laughs> Jesus could have said 33 years ago. <laughs> you know, we were all born, right? Right? I mean, we were all born. Jesus was born, but there's something about Jesus that was unique. He was not only born, but he arrived. <laughs> he came from somewhere else. He came down from heaven. And uh, he could have answered it that way, but that he wanted to get to the heart of the issue here. Jesus said, I'm, I came down from heaven. The Father sent me. The people didn't want to hear that. They said, wait a minute. You know, y- your folks just live up the mountain there. They're just up the mountain there at Nazareth. My dad knows your dad. You know, that sort of thing. Small town talk. My dad knows your dad. <laughs> you know, um, Who do you think you are? They didn't even recognize Jesus' virgin birth at this point. They were wanting to use Jesus, even as today we can want to use Jesus, not only to get what we want personally, but for political agendas or social agendas. Listen, friends, this is crucial. Jesus Jesus doesn't listen to the complaints of these people. He doesn't listen to their pushback and say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you there. Uh, Let me tone that down a bit. Let Let me give you what you want. He wasn't into popularity. Jesus wasn't into pacifying the people just so he could continue to be a popular preacher. He he was very bold. He was very bold in his message. I am the bread of life. If you don't eat of me, you're not going to live. Friends, Jesus is not plastic. You know what I mean by that. He's not plastic. He's not moldable. We don't mold Jesus to make him into what we want. Now, in a pluralistic society like ours where everybody has a right to his own opinion, you know, you'll, you'll hear people sometimes say things like, well, well, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? 
That's not the right question, is it? What's the right question? Who is Jesus? I mean, you, you can put a period there, or question mark. Who is Jesus? You can put a punctuation mark. You don't say, who is Jesus to you, as if you can make Jesus however you want him, and, and you can make Jesus however you want him, and, and you can make Jesus however you want him, and, and Jesus is this moldable helper, celestial helper, that we can tap into to get what we want in life. And I want this, so my Jesus is like that, and you want that, so your Jesus is like that. Jesus is not plastic. He came as the Son of God. He came as the bread of life. And, and you, you study his life. You study his words. Jesus doesn't flex on that. Jesus doesn't play to the crowds. And as we'll see next week, I'll be back with you next week, as we'll see next week, many of these people walked away. And Jesus didn't go running after them. He identified himself as the bread of life. So here's the question. Will you eat this living bread? Jesus said, unless you eat of me, you won't have life. That's an exclusive claim. Friends, <clears throat> let me just talk personally to each of us here for a minute. There's a hunger deep inside every one of us. I believe because we were made in the image of God, every one of us knows deep inside that we were made more for more than this life. The preacher in Ecclesiastes said that he put eternity in our hearts. And I think every human being who has rational capability realizes that I, I, I was made for more. I was made for more than just filling my temporal stomach. I was made for more than just temporal satisfaction. There's a hunger in each of us for more, for eternity. That even though people try to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, deep in their hearts they know who God is, that he is that powerful God who made me. I was made by him and I was made for him. And there's a hunger in each of us. And the sad reality, whether we're talking about a 21st century American or a 1st century Jew, our tendency, apart from God's intervening grace, is trying to satisfy an eternal hunger with temporal food. And I use the word food figuratively speaking. But people are hungry. They're hungry for something more, but almost thoughtlessly they try to stuff the stomach of themselves with food or drink or drugs or sex or money or popularity or approval. That I'm this isn't doing it for me, so I'll have more of it or I'll have something else. But I'm trying to satisfy this hunger of my soul with the food of this world. And it reminds me of the man who's maybe watching TV and spacing out. And he's thirsty, but he doesn't even address the real cause of his thirst. And so he has his bag of potato chips there. And so he binges on that bag of salty potato chips somehow thoughtlessly thinking it's going to satisfy him, but all it does is make him more thirsty and more thirsty. It never satisfies. And human beings, whether we're talking 1st century or 21st century, whether we're talking this side of the ocean or some other ocean, everybody's hungry. And apart from God's grace, everybody tries to satisfy that hunger of their soul with temporal food, and it never works. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ. 
He sent his son as the bread, the living bread, come down from heaven. (coughs) Jesus is speaking of sacrifice, that he will soon sacrifice his life. He says, unless you eat of my flesh, unless you drink of my blood, speaking of himself in his wholeness. He's not talking about some perverted cannibalism. But he's speaking symbolically that this is who I am. I am God's provision for you. I am the one who will give you eternal life. You can sustain yourself eternally on me and me alone. He says, unless, then he makes an exclusive claim. Unless you eat of me, unless you drink of me, you won't have life. So this morning, I want to ask you a question, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So what is your response to that today? The will of God is that you put your faith in him. That's his requirement. He wants his son to be honored. and He he calls you and me to put all of our faith in him. And if you're here today and you say, well, why should I do that? Why should I abandon my attempts to make myself acceptable to God? Why should I throw myself on Jesus Christ and Him alone? This passage, this long passage that we're looking at today, is full of reasons why you should trust Christ, why you should put all of your faith in Him. Verse 27, for on Him God the Father has set His seal, His seal of approval. You know, people come up with all these ideas of how to make themselves right with God. Well, I'll try morality. I'll try philanthropy. I'll try religiosity. You know, people come up with all these supposed paths to God. But there's only one path to God that has God's seal of approval. There's only one that God the Father says, that's the way. There's only one that has his seal. And that's his son, Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in a few months, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's an exclusive claim. And so I'm asking you today in love, what will you do with Jesus? Will you abandon all other attempts to make yourself right with God and say, I will trust Christ in him alone? The Father told us to do that. Verse 29, verse 33, Jesus said he's the bread of God that comes down from heaven. Verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never, ever starve spiritually. Verse 39 also says that you can trust Jesus. I'm looking forward. I'm going to drop back into this passage briefly next week, Lord willing. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Many of us in this room say, thank you, thank you, thank you. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And everyone that comes to me, I'll never lose my grip on her. I'll never lose my grip on him. You know, sometimes we struggle with assurance. If I made myself good enough for God, acceptable enough to God, your assurance, my friend, my assurance is found in Christ and his grip on us. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I'll never lose my grip. I'll never lose my grip on my people. Now, there's, there's a good reason to put your faith in Christ. Jesus said that, verse 39, that he'll raise us up on the last day. There's no other religion in the world that can promise us that. That we will be resurrected to eternal life when Jesus comes back. Verse 47, Jesus said, He who believes in me has eternal life, everlasting life. My friends, there are excellent reasons to put your faith in Christ and Him alone. 
For those of you who are not yet Christians, no matter what your age, some of you boys and girls that are here today, some of you teens, some of you adults, I know as a person, as a fellow human being, when I know from the Word of God that you're hungry, that there's a hunger in your soul, that you know as an image bearer of God that you were made for more. You were made for more than what this temporal world can give you. And I want to lovingly encourage you today to stop trying to fill the hunger of your soul with the food of this world. It won't satisfy. It won't give eternal life. Instead, to look to Christ, look to Christ, the bread of life, and say, I want Him. Not just what He can give me. I want Him. My hope is in Him and Him alone. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So I'm asking you, boys, girls, teens, adults, will you come to Christ today? I'm glad to stick around and talk to any of you personally. Some of you kids, maybe those Holy Spirits working in your heart. Talk to your folks. Talk to whoever brought you today, saying, how can I be right with God? We're, we're glad to talk to you. We want to see the crowd around the throne of King Jesus. We want to see that crowd around his throne on that day, large and loud. We want a large, loud crowd saying, worthy is the Lamb. We want you to be there with us.